Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, John. Hey, Ravan. Thank you for being on the podcast. How are you guys? Great. Thank you. How are you? Fantastic. So I've got two people here. I think the best way to run this is to make sure nobody talks over each other. I'll ask a question and I'll lead it into someone to start the response and then the other person can follow up. I think that's the best way to do it. So I want to get right into it because it's an interesting topic you guys covering. And I know with COVID coming through and all the changes in the workforce and so on, we're seeing a disaggregation and disintermediation in terms of the way work is managed. So starting with Raven, what are some of the big trends we're seeing in the way work is defined and the way it will be defined in the future? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. You know, I, I think going back to your, your comment a second ago, this pandemic has really accelerated um, so many trends around the future of work. Back in June of 2020, Satya Nadella said that a two-year trend in digitalization had been accomplished in the first two years of the pandemic. And I think the implications for the future of work, um, as John and I lay out in our various writings, um, are far more profound because it's not just digitalization that is changing work. It's also this other force called the democratization of work, um, our growing ability to rapidly decouple work from its traditional confines of space, time, and structure. And I, I think that's really at the heart of this pivot um, in terms of the world of work, this, this quest for agility, and as we've written about it in Work Without Jobs, the need to consistently look for and experiment and test for ever more agile ways of working uh, with, with much greater flexibility, much greater agility, much greater resilience. And so, so I do think we have seen this tipping point in the world of work, and we're going to see that just continue to accelerate and uh, we hope that our writings will be helpful to business leaders who are, who are looking to stay relevant as work is changing. Raman, I'm going to come back on some of those comments you made. They're quite interesting and I'm going to build on it. But let's get John's view on that question. Uh, yeah, I think Robin has really captured it. Um, I think for me, what I experience is that um, many leaders ha ha are, are encountering what I might call the edges. So they're doing automation. And they don't really have a language for it. Yes. But their dilemma is that we, we were sold automation because we thought it would neatly replace these people in these jobs and we'd redeploy that many FTEs to something else. That's a real good example. Another one is we're facing a shortage of certain kinds of work, nurses, cybersecurity, et cetera. And those shortages were calculated by assuming we have a job called, let's say, cybersecurity engineer. We need people that are fully qualified to be in that job and they need to have degrees that qualify them. And if we run the numbers using those assumptions, we come up with millions and millions of a shortage. Um, and, and so we can't fill our jobs. Automation is different than we thought. Those are what we hear from leaders, but they have no language. They're not asking for a work operating system that would let them atomize the job and deal with it at the task level. That's often what they need. And so that was part of the reason for our latest interest in writing a book that would bring that to the fore. 
I haven't heard the term work operating system before. So, John, do you want to explain that for the audience? Sure. I think the, the analogy that we use, I think you have heard that. I think everyone will have heard the, the word operating system as it refers to computing. Yes. And if you go back to the beginnings of operating systems and look up how they work, um, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to have been in the days when there were these cards that you you typed on and punched holes in them according to the command you wanted the computer to execute and you fed them in. But even early PCs, the operating systems worked one job at a time. You put a word processing program up and the computer worked on that. And then you closed it and you moved to the spreadsheet. Now today, of course, it looks like everything is being done simultaneously. That cat video you wanna watch is in one screen, the spreadsheet is in another, the word processing is in another. Actually, the CPU time is, is, is still one thing, but it's been sliced up into nanoseconds and it can go across all those applications with 10 nanoseconds per application sequentially. So what you've done is you've deconstructed the CPU time to allow it to do tiny tasks. And that's how the current operating system solves the problem of the need to operate everything simultaneously. So we propose the analogy that the traditional work operating system has one job at a time filled by a job holder with a degree, all in chunks. What we're proposing is that we deconstruct or atomize those elements. Jobs look more like their component tasks and projects. Workers look more like their full array of capabilities and degrees of learning looks more like individual credentials. At that atomized level, now that you have divided everything up, you can find options that simply aren't available if you're using an operating system that says we have a job that must be filled by a job holder with a full set of qualifications. Okay, so that's very interesting. I'm going to paraphrase certain things for the audience to make sure they pick up some of the key points here. And obviously, correct me if I miss some of these things. So the basic premise here, and it makes a lot of sense to me because I'm seeing that with other clients as well, is you break down tasks into its maybe a subset of activities, but different actors are involved in fulfilling that task rather than having a worker defined as a marketing manager handling everything for marketing. So coming back to Raven, so you work at Mercer, which is one of the great consulting firms. What are you seeing with clients in terms of making this transition? What's happening on the ground practically? That's a really good question. So at Mercer, I take care of the transformation business globally, which is a fairly large, diverse business. Yes. That's yeah. all about helping organizations transform or given the forces that, that John and I have just been talking about and the opportunities before them. And what we're seeing with many organizations is, you know, coming back to your opening question about this pandemic, right? The pandemic has cre put, created opportunities and challenges that were unanticipated in so many different yeah. ways. And I think for many organizations, it's, it's really become this tipping point towards going towards, you know, whether it's our words of a new work operating system, I think as John said, nobody comes to you asking for a new work operating system. Yes. But I think there is just this recognition that it has to be different. You know, we have to do things in a fundamentally different way because the legacy ways of working are just not happening for multiple reasons, right? One is, and we're seeing this with what's been called the great resignation well, or labor shortages. Um, 
that the workforce is fundamentally not signing up to that legacy one-size-fits-most deal that is typically configured and predicated on the notion of a person in a position or on the notion of jobs you know, tied to job holders. I think that's one side of it from a supply side perspective. And then I think from a demand side perspective, just this growing recognition that the, the way work is being done is, is just not agile enough to respond to the growing challenges of the competitive environment, the ge geopolitical environment, or you know, the social environment. And so you've got these, this confluence of forces that are causing companies to step back and say, it's not just about incremental change. It has to be about something fundamentally different that is going to take a lot more friction, a lot more sand out of the gears than you know, how we might have traditionally sort of transformed to look for incremental gains at the margins. So that really seems to be at the heart of some of the questions that we're hearing from clients is help us reset culture, help us reset the business model, help us reset the way we connect people to work, help us reset our mindset of how we think about automation within the context of this, or of this environment. I like that. Previously, we've seen companies respond to these demands from the market by simply paying more and increasing benefits. But what you're saying is because of the great resignation and COVID, that's not enough to keep employees anymore. You have to do some fundamental changes or make some fundamental changes in the way you not just hire people, but the way you deploy their skills into the marketplace. So coming back to you, John, are there some good examples here of companies that are doing this well, have started this process? Yes, I think, uh, and uh, we, we were fortunate enough to encounter a lot of examples as we put together the book. And, and so let me give you one and give full credit to our colleague, Greg Till. This one comes from a healthcare provider, a regional healthcare provider in the US. And I, I think it's a good one because it walks through almost everything we talk about in the book. Yes. So, so just as I said before, think about nurses this time. Yeah. And the economists will go and they will calculate a nursing shortage of at least a million nurses by 2022. And again, as I said, in order to make that calculation, you have to decide the units you're going to use to add and subtract. And the units are an intact nurse job filled by a fully qualified nurse with a degree from a college. And at every point in that supply chain, you say the nursing jobs are exploding, the number of college graduates is not nearly sufficient to fill them, and so we will not have enough of these humans called nurses ready to fill those jobs. That's how you get the million sorted, yes. you see what I mean? Now, here's Providence Health, here comes COVID. Not only do they need more nurses, but of course COVID has accelerated that need. You can think about the nurse job as a box, with things like intubating patients, caring for patients that are very, very sick, but also taking temperatures of relatively stable patients, checking in on patients who say, I'm okay, doing scheduling for the entire nursing staff. Well, if you think about that, Providence said, that said let's melt the nurse job, let's deconstruct it and let the pieces flow out. Would we put them together this way? And they said, you know, we can take what they call top of license nursing tasks, intubating patients, caring for severely ill patients, et cetera. Those should be in the work of the nurses. Taking temperatures, checking on well patients, those tasks could actually be done by people we previously called maybe receptionists. And so now the receptionist job melts and it absorbs some of that. 
And then what about this scheduling thing that takes a day or two for a nurse? There's a thing called automation. We can melt that task and flow it over to a scheduling software with AI that takes the task away or makes it, it, it literally done in, in minutes. And then the interesting thing for me is, well, we still have a great deal of that top of license nursing work to be done. Again, seriously ill patients, et cetera. Is there another source for that? Well, we have these people in jobs called hospital administrators, chief operating officer of the hospital, chief financial officer of the hospital. They're actually former physicians. Let's get them relicensed and they can flow to the work on the floor one day a week. So now we have top of nurse license work being done by physicians whose quote unquote job is to administer the hospital. So you see what I mean by, by in a sense melting and allowing these parts of the work to become more fluid, Providence essentially could reset this notion of a shortage and think of it in very different now atomized units that don't require a job. Um, and, then, and, and then of course we have examples like that where a distribution center is automating. Again, we used to have these jobs of people doing picking and packing, et cetera, in the distribution center as we automate. Automation takes on perhaps first just the picking of very easy things, then it starts transporting things around the floor. And as we talk about in the book, in that example, you end up having to perpetually kind of deconstruct and then reinvent the work as automation progresses because you really still need the people, they just work differently. Uh, and sometimes retail store employees flow to the distribution center because COVID reduced demand for employees on the floor of the store, but increased demand in the distribution center. Those retail employees don't take jobs in the distribution center, they take a gig, a project, where they come over for part of the time and do part of the work. So again, you can see why Robin and I were struck by how you can't really see these options and these patterns if the operating system is restricted to jobs, job holders, and degrees. Instead, you hear a lot about, but that's not my job, for example, when people need to flow, or I wish I could help, but it's not in my job. And that was kind of the motivation for many of the examples that we saw. I like this example. When I was reading the book, um, Work Without Jobs, what struck me is that to be able to accomplish this, you would need a very finely tuned system to be able to coordinate all of these tasks, or it could become burdensome for employees. So coming back to you, Ravan, one of the challenges I see with this process, while it makes sense and it is the future, what are some of the challenges companies would face enrolling this out so they don't burden employees? Because if it's badly managed, you have employees who are in a sense multitasking and don't know where the limit is. Because I think one of the challenges with COVID is people ended up working far longer hours than they were expected to be working because they were at home and there was no boundaries. So how do you coordinate this? How do you roll this out in such a way that you take the health and care of employees into consideration? Yeah, so I actually think um, this, the new work operating system we're talking about, and I'll, I'll just talk through four of the principles to sort of um, give you a sense of why I'm saying this. I, I actually think it sets itself up much better for us to do, to create a much more humane and human 
centric approach to work because by looking at the combination of tasks and, and starting at the task as that fundamental building block, we get to sort of aggregate up with um, and, and build in learning into the flow of work. We get to build in space and time into the flow of work as opposed to today, I think what we see is the job is defined as this finite thing, right? And there is this tendency to cram as much as possible into this notion of, of a job because the, the, the way jobs have, the way people think of jobs is they keep adding to them. I've, in my 30 years of consulting, and I've worked with two very large organizations that have two of the largest compensation databases in the world, I have never seen a job description get smaller. If anything, yes. over the course of the that last 10 true. years, we've seen job descriptions explode exponentially. And it's one of the reasons why I think, you know, by moving to the task as that, that sort of atomized element, right, that we start with, you get to be much more responsive to the human need. You get to be much more responsive to the evolving need of the business. So maybe I can just talk through the four principles here, because yes, I think please. they help shed light on why John and I think you've got an opportunity for a much more human-centric and humane approach to work. So the first is, as John has alluded to, you know, starting with the work. So the current and future tasks, not the existing jobs. So kind of transcending that legacy of jobs as a starting point. Secondly, unlike many, you know, the approach of many towards automation, looking at achieving the optimal combinations of humans and automation asking the question of where are tasks substituted versus augmented versus transformed or where new human work is created. Very often, as, as you well know, the automation conversation becomes very binary, right? Mm. You know, if I'm leading with automation, I'm typically looking for what jobs or what work can I substitute? Yes. I don't often see the augmentation or transformation. The third dimension or the third principle is considering the full array of human work engagements. And, and John put it beautifully when he described the work at, of nurses at Providence, when he talked about the, the, uh, the, the talent in the retail uh, organization, who is, which is our case study. But where does employment make the most sense? Where does gig talent make the most sense? Where do freelancers or alliances or you know, more agile ways of working make sense? Yeah. As, you know, we, we've seen the internal marketplace become a really hot topic. What's the, what's the work that best lends itself to be done in those marketplaces? And Robin, the fourth... if I might, um, let me just build on that, that point because I think it's important. We talked about how automation doesn't neatly replace people in jobs. And in, in uh, actually this is now, now two books ago, uh, what Robin and, and David Krillman and I found was we couldn't really see the patterns of non-employment work. So a gig worker often does a project, not an entire job. And so again, the system needs to be broken up to see those projects. And then you can see options for contractors, gig workers, et cetera. And then as Robin said, if, 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 if listeners wish for an example, simply type into a search engine, internal talent marketplaces, and you will see these are platforms where leaders can post a project and employees can volunteer to do that project in addition to their job and, and look up Unilever's experience with it called U-Work or, or their Flex system. And you'll see statistics on thousands and thousands of what they call hidden hours of work 
that were available from employees who are passionate about a project. But it can only happen if you can post the project, not the job. I like that. That's a very good example. It makes it very clear. Thank you. Do you and want to continue with principle, Robin? Yep. Yes. Me. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just wrap up with the the fourth principle, which is, and John has kind of touched on this with the marketplace, but you know, thinking about how do we allow talent to flow to work versus only being limited to this to fixed traditional jobs. So how do we increase the agility with which talent is being connected to work? And I think this has probably been one of the more interesting and positive outcomes of the pandemic is as companies look to respond quickly to changing and differential impacts of the pandemic on work, getting talent to move from you know, being focused on the corporate office to now dealing with um, work in the contact centers, which we're seeing a spike in work. We saw companies thinking beyond themselves. You know, in Germany, we had McDonald's sharing its talent with Aldi. Um, talent in similar with similar customer service type skills. So we think these four elements or these four principles are really foundational to this new world of work. And as we show in the book, you know, the, the benefits, not just to the organization in terms of speed, agility, reduced time to productivity, higher levels of productivity, but also where you started with this question of how do we ensure that we're building a more human and humane way of working? I like that. I want to build on what you said, Ravan, with a follow-up question, then I'll get John's view on this. So when I was in consulting, when I was a consulting partner, the big shift was um, outsourcing to lower labor costs. And then when digital became something that executives saw as a way to lower labor costs even further, they looked at digitizing entire portions of the workforce. That became the big trend. But listening to what you and John are saying, it seems as if a big part of this is not replacing labor with digital, it's augmenting labor with digital. So what has caused that shift? What has caused management and companies to focus on augmentation? Or are you saying they should be focusing on augmentation? I think it's both. I think it is, the, the thing we talk about in this book is the need for organizations to have the capacity and capability to perpetually reinvent work to perpetually be looking for those opportunities to substitute, whether it's with robotic process automation or RPA or to substitute with a gig worker. Where, is there, where are there opportunities for augmentation um, with potentially um, you know, artificial intelligence or machine learning? And then where is there new work that's gonna be created? So I think it's all of the above, but you don't get to see the signals. You don't get to see the opportunities if you only denominate work in terms of jobs, it's only at the task level that you see these opportunities to do all of these things. But the more important thing is to have the capacity to perpetually reinvent because where you, know, where, where you started with this question is, there is the, the old operating system is kind of a one and done, right? Yes. I've designed a job, I'm just gonna go now fill it until, the person who's in it now leaves, I'll go find someone else and I'll fill it and I'll keep making it bigger and bigger and bigger. Yes. Now what we're saying is all you're doing that way is perpetuating you know, labor costs, perpetuating stress, strife, conflict, and dysfunction in your operating model. But if, if you can have the mindset and culture to perpetually reinvent, then you start to create you know, you, your ability to sort of constantly raise the bar but it does require 
you know, a culture, a mindset, and a tool set um, of all of your stakeholders, individual employees, HR leaders, to buy into this. And I think that's where the real work is. Yes, and I like this uh, way you summed it up there because if you think about the way we think about work today, and if you look at an organizational chart, it lists work roles as opposed to activities and projects people need to be delivering. Mm -hmm. And that forces people into these buckets of activity, but there's no real outcomes focus. And I think that's what's missing in the current structure. So, you know, I remember when I was a consultant and people started using laptops to build financial models. And there was this real fear that it's going to put consultants out of jobs, but it didn't do anything like it. In fact, it freed us up to be more creative. So, you know, building on that, coming to you, John, what are some of the opportunities here? Because a lot of people are always afraid when you talk about digitization and replacement of workers and augmentation, they think it's the starting point of replacement. But let's talk about some of the opportunities. What are some of the big things we're seeing companies doing right here? Well, yes, I think, um, uh, I, I think it's a really good way to put it. We need to definitely shift the conversation toward the opportunities for enhanced work rather than the threat of replaced work. Now, let me say, I think very often the mindset uh, is about uh, replacing and about saving money with automation. I think it's a fair thing to say, Robin may have more experience than I do on this, he's more in the field, but I think that's how automation is sold. Um, the, the reality, of course, is that it can create terrific opportunities. We, in, in our previous book, and, and we touched on it in this one, there's a case study of oil rig automation. And, uh, you know, the, the result is, is that we take people off the oil rigs and you could say, well, that's going to lay off a lot of oil rig workers. But it turns out that what you need after you've automated is you need those really smart, experienced oil rig maintenance people in a control room. And that control room can direct them to the rig that needs their expertise, and they can then virtually direct the robotic uh, rig maintenance. So if you, if you look at the way work is designed around oil rig maintenance, yes, there are no people on the rig anymore, but there are lots of those people with that expertise in a control room. You see lots of pictures on this on the web. So what we've done is we've taken the work of an, of an expert, really smart individual about maintenance, and we've created a control center so that we can direct that expertise to any rig that needs it rather than, 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 than fixing them on only one. Same thing is true with bank tellers is another good example. Exactly the same transformation where tellers used to be humans standing at a certain spot in a certain yes. place and, and now automatic teller machines come in. The, you know, there's a study I cite very often by James Besson that shows that as teller machines increase, so did, so did tellers. But the work has changed, of course. They're often virtual. They're much more assistance, et cetera. So I think Robin put it well. Yes, at the task level, automation can certainly replace humans. We don't really need that many people handing out tasks anymore with automatic teller machines. But it, but it also has the chance to augment what they did before, make it faster and more accurate, or to really reinvent the work so that they're in partnership with something like AI, et cetera. Uh, and again, I think what we, what we continue to discover is that an operating system based on a job called a teller, and the question of how many tellers will a teller machine replace 
that operating system simply can't reveal what happened. It can't explain what really happened. For that, we need some kind of new denomination. I like this example. And for people thinking about this example, you just have to step back and look at the broad macro trends here. Banks have ended up hiring more people despite automation in the United States. So mm -hmm. we always worry about jobs being lost, but we must remember we're freeing up capital to be redeployed to create more mm -hmm. jobs where mm -hmm. they are needed. So coming yeah. back to you, Ravan, one of the things I've noticed is that we've been through this before. We've been through the Industrial Revolution. We've been through the arrival of IT in the United States. And while there's always uncertainty, things always work out better because we're deploying capital in a better way. So why are so many executives afraid today when history shows us we'll manage this well? Yeah, you know, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think it's because there is always going to be so sort of that unknown, right? And you're right, we've gone through three industrial revolutions um, in each one, as we've all seen and read, you know, for, despite all of the foretelling of doom that jobs were going to disappear, <clears throat> we found a way to create um, new work for humans. I think the big variable here, the big unknown, is, is AI and, and the power of AI. Um, you know, there is this belief that we are, um, that general purpose artificial intelligence will soon be there and that will replace, you know, lots and lots of work. And, and I think it's that lack of understanding about AI and its yes. true progression that is at the heart of so much angst and concern. Um, because yes, we've certainly seen, right, in the last 10 to, 10 to 20 years, AI significantly accelerated because it's got now for the first time even though it's been with us since the late 50s. For the first time, we have the infrastructure, the, the data generating assets um, to be able to power AI. Um, but we are a long, long way from any form of general purpose artificial intelligence. And as we're seeing now, even with you know, um, driverless cars, which are probably one of, one of the more developed yes. aspects of AI, we are nowhere near having widespread deployment. Um, and it's going to be a long time, but it's it's that very human reaction, right? That we've seen this with all types of technology. We overestimate the impact in the near term, but we underestimate the pervasiveness over the long term, i.e. how it sort of spreads out across different industries. And, and that I think is probably what's going to be quite interesting to watch, you know, 20 years, 25, 30 years from now, how pervasive are some of these aspects, not from a general purpose perspective, but in terms of unique bespoke dimensions that get applied to very focused bodies of work. And I think we also underestimate human capacity to adjust. Absolutely right. Yes. And learn from this. Even if we have fleets of AI powered automobiles, we'll have new industries catering mm -hmm. to them that will most likely require humans mm -hmm. for maintenance and so on. So, I can see the fear, but history shows us humans can adapt. So coming to you, John, building on what Ravin has said, why do you think there's such a fear of technology today? It's a good question. And I don't know that I could presume to get in the minds of <laughs> those that are fearful. Of course, fear of technology has been around since, you know, everyone goes to the Luddites and, yes. the, you know, many people don't realize that when the first automatic teller machine was, was deployed at Lloyd's in London, uh, 
the tellers would sneak out at their break and pour honey onto the keyboard. Whoa. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, this, this idea that, oh, it's going to replace me uh, is, is quite pervasive. I think part of it is what we talked about that the, let, let's see, let me express it this way. You can, there's a website you can go to and it's, it's it, I, I don't remember what it's called. I'd have to look it up, but basically there are many of them. And you can type in your job title and it will give you a probability that you'll be replaced by automation. Now the it way sounds those like a very scary website. Yes, exactly. And, and it's sort of built and I think it probably gets a lot of hits and, and you know, it's fine. I don't have any criticism of a website like that. But the way the research is done is that you can't really say whether a job will be replaced. The researchers, all of them at MIT, McKinsey, anywhere you see this, Accenture, have to break down the jobs into tasks and then look at the probability that automation will automate that task. And they mostly focus on replacing the human in that task. You know, so that is kind of the approach has been to start the question with how, how replaceable will humans be? So the probability you get is basically not that your entire job will be automated. It's the probability that certain pieces of your job will be automated. And if the total of those pieces is, let's say, more than 50%, then we say you're in danger of being replaced. But of course, the result will not be that you're replaced. The result will be that the automation is doing 50% of what you did. Yes. And the organization will still need someone to do the other 50%. So, so I think it's, these things are framed, first of all, in the same way that I talked about the nursing shortage being framed as jobs and job holders, they're sort of framed as replacement. Um, and the other thing is, and this is pretty fundamental, in fact, I have a colleague, Ben Snyder, that I'm working on, a, we, we developed a diagnostic about what we call work automation climate. And what we get at in that measure is the support of leadership, the trust of employees in leadership, the rewards, et cetera, all focus on this idea of work automation. Do you feel your organization rewards you for engaging with work automation? Are your leaders supportive? Do you trust that the organization has your interests in mind? And so, so I think it's, it's also that um, uh, the or organization cultures need to shift to the idea of creating opportunities with automation. That doesn't mean nothing will be replaced, but I'm hoping to see very soon, I've said this to almost every leadership group I've talked to, I'm waiting for a company to step up and say, we will automate only as quickly as we can prepare our workers. Because like I that. think that the payoff, you see what I mean? Rather than, I think an organization that does that will end up with workers who are enthusiastic and partners in the automation, even if it takes longer. And they will win over companies that automated fast by replacing their workers. Because the combination of humans and automation with an enthusiastic and engaged group, this is why Ben Schneider and I are developing this work automation climate index. If, if that I think is a more powerful combination than automating faster, but not considering the work implications, not considering the combination of people and work automation. So building on that, coming back to you, Ravan, you know, one of the things we've seen is that a common theme in your work is that it's about taking the work and breaking it down into its constituent tasks and figuring out which parts can be and should be automated and digitized to make the work be done better and so on. And I think one of the things that's missed in this whole conversation 
not with us, but I think in the general conversation, the media is that if you look at the industrial revolution, when, you know, Britain was um, automating and uh, building machines to do weaving and so on, tasks then were quite simple. So you could remove a human from it and bring in a machine to till the land. But today tasks are quite complicated. It's not that easy to simply automate the entire task because it's made up of complicated little steps. So building on that mm-hmm. question, how would a CEO explain what he's trying to do or she's trying to do to employees, the board and so on? Because it looks like it's a complicated conversation to have. It's many nuances here. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, you're right. It's, it's a complicated conversation to have, but it starts you know, at, at the level of how do we create a mindset and a culture that we are going to perpetually reinvent work? And that, I think, is the first roadblock to be crossed or the first obstacle or hurdle to be crossed, because in most organizations, it's we have jobs, we organize jobs in this structure, and this is how we get work done. And so I think you need to create a mindset that breaks from that to say, we are going to perpetually reinvent work. And we are going to create a mindset. We're going to create a culture. You know, I love John's point about automating at the speed of you know, at which we can keep our people relevant, right? I think is an incredibly powerful point because that's the only way you get buy-in, right? So you want to be, you want to perpetually reinvent. Well, if you want to perpetually reinvent, you have to ensure that you're going to keep me relevant as you reinvent. Now, relevant doesn't mean I'm going to stay with you forever, right? Or you're going to keep upskilling me forever. Um, it's, I had an, a client once reframe their value proposition as, we will develop you for opportunity, either within or without. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we had the Unilever case study in the book. Um, you know, we, we've had the privilege of working with Unilever uh, over the years and, you know, to help develop their framework for the future of work. And it's very explicit about, you know, employees and managers having these future fit conversations and ensuring that the mindset, our business is going to perpetually change. We're going to need to perpetually reinvent our model, operating model, and our jobs. And you're going to need to perpetually keep reinventing yourself with our support to stay relevant, either for the job you're in today, for a different job, or for another organization. So I think it starts with mindset. And then I think it needs to cascade down into the tool set of what are the tools that are going to equip managers and employees to continuously deconstruct workflows and jobs and continuously ask the questions of, is there a better way of doing this? What's the role of automation? Where do we tap into non-employee pools of talent, et cetera? And then the discipline to keep reconstructing new and different and better jobs, as opposed to today, you know, the, some might say the easy out is to say, well, hey, John, you know, you've got these 30 tasks on your job. Here's two more because we need to get it done and we're just going to stick it on you to go figure out how to do it. You've said something very profound here, which I want to pull out for the audience. Often when we talk about business, we talk about companies constantly innovating when it comes to service delivery, when it comes to products, when it comes to the way they manage R&D and so on. But it's very rare when someone says, we have to think about work as something that we are constantly changing to improve. It's not a static concept. That's, I think, an important point. But I want to just shift gears a little bit here. When we talk about work changing and so on, we tend to 
have a mindset that it just applies to a company, but it also has geopolitical implications. I mean, I can imagine a country like Germany being very, very concerned when you consider that a big portion of its industrial base is automotive manufacturing. And currently it's combustion engine led, which hires more people, needs more people. And as they shift towards electric cars, they're gonna to have to find ways to reskill a big chunk of their labor force, which will no longer be employed. So let's talk about that a little bit because it has geopolitical implications. It's not just about companies, is it? Yes, no, that's exactly right. And, and in fact, you know, the, in Work With Our Jobs, the, the back end of our book is really about the broader social implications. And the good news is that many organizations, right, like the World Economic Forum, the OECD, are actively thinking about this, have created forums to, to help address this, um, you know, um, we talked about the work that I'm involved with, and I'm, I've had the privilege of being involved with a number of automakers as well as oil and gas companies. And one of the most significant challenges is how do we deal with stranded assets, right, as we go through this transition? And not just stranded assets in terms of an oil rig, but now it's decades of investment in human talent that have been paid, you know, um, lots and lots of sums of money for work that is now going to disappear in yeah. the next you know, three to five to 10 years. Um, and that's a really significant concern. But, but I, I think it, it goes back to what John said, right? You, you, as a business leader, you, you, you have the obligation to ensure that your accountability to the workforce on the transition is, is as present and as evident as your accountability to the shareholder and to society at large, right? As we go through this transition. Yeah. And it's, it's just obviously a heck of a lot easier said than done, but um, the World Economic Forum is about to put out in April um, a document on standards for good work. Um, and I'm really pleased with, with what they're gonna talk about, but equally, um, and uh, I'm really pleased with the title of the report because it's not about good jobs. It's really about how do we create the conditions for good work? I like that. Jobs versus work, it seems, very similar, but it's a profound difference. Coming back to you, John, I was speaking to a senior government official who works on the President's Advisory Council in Philippines. And they were telling me that COVID was a massive shock for them because the Philippines is a country that has a tradition of sending out workers to serve as nannies, caregivers, and so on around the world. And a big chunk of remittances comes back into Philippines in the form of wages sent back to families in the Philippines. And what they're planning for is a future when the work that Filipinos do internationally is going to be automated and has significant implications for them. So let's talk through a little bit what um, Raven was talking about building it. How should countries respond to this? Well, that's a, I, I love that question uh, for two reasons. Uh, one, one is it's a, it's a really interesting perspective on how work is global. You know, so the Philippines issue is not so much about within the country of the Philippines, but about yes. what we might call expats, right, all over the world. Yeah. The second one is that it's it's just interesting to me because you touched on caregiving as an as a, as a as an arena of work. 
Yes. And uh, and I think in general, my own opinion is that 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 caregiving is often an invisible kind of work. Its its marketplace is not very developed. One of the things one would hope is that that kind of work, and there's a lot of it. It's not just caregiving, but lots of work in the home, et cetera, would 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 become uh, elevated, would would generate a marketplace because we wouldn't need a job title for it, because we wouldn't need to have it have an employment contract in yes. order to be counted. And so you can you can imagine that one result of what we're talking about, if we took the full array of uh, human capabilities and the full array of things that they did, caregiving would show up now as a very big element of of the workplace, yes. even though it's, it's it's rather invisible because no one actually writes an employment contract very often for that. So that's, so I think that, um, you know, it, when this all, when this all matures, one can imagine a sort of global marketplace that is defined more in terms of the capabilities and, and more in terms of the work than waiting for us to be able to define a job, et cetera. Um, and, and I think then more, then more generally, shifting away from the Philippines example and, and sort of the emergence of this invisible work, the, the, uh, the principles and, and many of the reports that Robin talks about would suggest that we'll move to some sort of a economic comparison with some countries having very friendly, uh, very friendly environments like um, portable pensions, uh, like a safety net that allows fluidity. So in the U.S., there's great, you know, there's a great deal of, of, of fear about the lack of job security if we shift to work that is more project-based, more platform-based, like contractors, gig workers, et cetera. A lack of, and, and they're right, because in the U.S., retirement savings are tied to employment, healthcare is tied to employment, a good deal of your identity is the organization to which you belong or can, can name as your employer. Um, and, and all of that begins to get very fluid as we start to think about this new work system. So I think we're going to see, again, just we're going to see uh, a real need for policy to consider if we start with the idea that work is fluid, that work is more atomized, what are the social uh, underpinnings that are going to allow, allow that and considerations of everything from basic income to how collective representation happens on platforms and other places. The World Economic Forum titled one of their reports that we cite in the book, Good Platform Work. And I love that because the platform to me, that uh, like a freelance platform or a gig platform or an internal marketplace, that kind of platform is a good metaphor for a part of the work that is really kind of under addressed by a lot of policies. I'll just finish and say for all of your listeners, every time I hear a policymaker say the words good jobs, I cringe and wish they would say, <laughs> I wish they would say good work. Because yes. as soon as you say that, you open up an entirely different discussion. Robin, I commend you for your influence on getting that report from the World Economic Forum titled and focused on good work and not not the the temptation to default to the word jihad. <laughs> yes, well, it's a I very agree. good point. Ravan, do you mind if I just lead into a very important distinction here I want to make? Mm -hmm. And I also want to sort of begin wrapping up, but it seems quite profound here because when we think about this, right, we've been having a discussion about employees 
we've been having a discussion now about the global implications, geopolitics, and so on. And um, John, you, you raised a very good point about portable pensions, because I was actually speaking to a government official in Estonia, where they are actually mm. thinking about portable pensions, because that's the only way they can compete, they believe, because the workforce is going to be so global moving across the EU. Mm-hmm. So what I'm thinking about here is that while we've been talking about workers and employees and so on, if we go down this route, and I agree, this distinction between jobs and work is something I haven't heard before, but it makes a lot of sense to me. So I must you know, commend both you guys for making this point and doing your best to drive it into the business community. But the implications are quite significant because it would require an overhaul of the entire educational system. So it's not just that employers and employees need to change, it's the institutional systems would need to change to support this as well. Well, that's right. I'll, Robin, if I can, I'll just take a quick shot at this. Um, in simple terms, when I present, as I present this to groups and policymakers and others, there is this, there, you know, there's this level of the work and we atomize jobs into tasks and projects. There's yes. this level of the worker, and we atomize a job holder into their capabilities, and we consider not just the ones applied to that job, but the full array of those capabilities. And then a third layer we are calling uh, learning is the word that I like, um, and that is, is in the, that is traditionally <clears throat> indicated by a degree or a credential, so there's a complete basket of things that must be completed. If you don't complete your full four-year degree, it's a zero-one switch. You know, you are either yes. a nursing degree or not a nursing degree. Yeah, you either gotta, you know, And so same at the education level. Well, what if we atomize that? You know, what yes. are the classes that make up a degree? What are the experiences? And indeed, you see the education systems in many countries, and I'm most familiar with the United States, um, some of the um, more vocational colleges have coined the term stackable credentials. And, and what they envision is that you'll take two or three classes and that will become a credential for you to go work in a certain way. That work will give you credit for the learning you do there. And then you'll return to the school and you'll do some more classes and those will stack up onto more credentials. No degree yet, but oh, and then you'll go work. And over the course of those kinds of permeable movement between school and work, you're being tracked to eventually get what would be the equivalent of a degree. Um, one more example in cybersecurity, Ginny Romady, form, former CEO of <laughs> IBM, has a group called 110, and she is making all kinds of speeches saying, we will not solve the cybersecurity shortage by waiting for cybersecurity degrees. She says, companies are over-specifying their jobs. Yes. Hire the person who's 60% qualified, get them working that 60% and then develop them on the other 40, rather than the traditional system of if you're only 60%, that's an unqualified check mark, go back and get the rest of the qualifications before we consider you for this job. So you can see this atomization, this melting, even at the education level. Yes, it has profound implications. Thank you so much for that point, John. As we wrap up, Robin, is there anything you want to add on this discussion about the implications for the educational systems to support this change? Yeah, just, just two quick uh, comments. I, John, I, I appreciate you commending me on the, on the change in the World Economic Forum's verbiage, but I, I think uh, they deserve the credit for that. 
Um, yeah, I've no. just been pri pri privileged to have worked with them. But um, I, I do, you know, I, on this point about learning, I, I think what the Singapore government is doing, I think is really instructive. Um, it's something that many have talked about, that the answer to, you know, that the learning dimension of the future of work is really kind of a three-party um, point of engagement, right? Government, academia, and business. And, yes. and I do think what Singapore has done with skills future, with ensuring that companies have got an incentive to keep upskilling their workforces, employees have got the space and the motivation to do that. You've got access, unfettered and frictionless access to the learning resources from academia and government kind of playing that intermediary role, as well as playing a bit of a signaling role. I think, you know, that to me is a really sustainable way of doing this. And I would, I do hope, uh, and we've seen some of that in Denmark, for example, but I do hope in, in Western Europe and in, and in the United States, we can see a bit more of that sort of collaboration. Yes, it's interesting to me how we started off the discussion about the changing nature of work. But when you actually drill down into the implications, it's much bigger than work. It's a change in the way society is actually going to be managed. When I always look at ideas that have staying power because they are you know, fundamental, you always have to look at whether it's going to have a cascading effect across society. And I think this concept does that. So I want to thank both of you for being on the show. I actually enjoyed that conversation immensely. And I think our audience is going to like it as well. So thank you so much. Oh, thank, thank you very much. much. So we'll wrap up here and we'll be in touch. And I look forward to speaking to you both in the future. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.